Hello to the listener. Welcome to Private Practice Podcast. Who knows what episode? Who knows what season? Well, I certainly don't. Anyway, we have a packed podcast for you today. I have so much stuff that I want to say and so many things that I want to talk about. I don't even know if we're going to fit it into the 45 minutes that I've allocated to record this podcast. And I'm James Hall. Welcome to Private Practice Podcast. Hello. Yes. Hi, James Hall. How are you? Fine, thank you. And if the listener hasn't been to private practice... Sorry, was that the initiation of small talk? Yes. Uh, (laughs) Maybe maybe not small talk. Maybe I'm asking how you are. Um... Your hair's certainly looking very interesting nowadays. It's very long. I le- like, I'm aware of my hair all day, every day. Mm-hmm. Like, it just flops in my eyes. It, fl- it flops in my face. I can, like, I can just feel hair when I move my head around. How horrible. I think I should go into this. I had a s- substantial chicken curry about an hour ago. Oh, so I've, I've had enough time to digest that I am okay to sit here and talk. If we'd, done, if we'd started this maybe half an hour ago, I'd have been in a complete chicken curry coma and I would have struggled a bit. That's a clinical condition. I think we're fine now. Cool. Good. So there's that. How are you? No, you, that can't be all. Okay, how, um, what else do you want me to go into? I don't know. I mean, recently you saw your mum for the first time in months. Yes. Like... Six months? Four months? Six months. That's a long time to not see mummy. <laughs> you saw your mum, you know, these yeah. things. And um, nothing eatable happened. <laughs> good. Um, good. Well, did it? Did nothing eatable happen or did nothing sexual happen? But no- something eatable probably did happen. Nothing sexual happened. That's good. That's good. Glad that you managed that. We saw we went for a walk along the Wandle Valley and saw some enormous leaves. I can't think of the name of the plant. I, I, I've, this is enough of my small talk. Tell me about how are you? Oh, I've, I've been a lot better, James. I've been a lot better, but I'm in a good mood today. Um, yeah, I think we might go into that a bit later, maybe. But yeah, you know, a lot of lot of stuff on at work. Can I ask? for some specifics just to prepare myself as to whether or not panic attacks can be mentioned or not panic attacks can be mentioned yes okay um in that case preston from the ordinary boys preston from the ordinary boys preston from the ordinary boys preston did you know that the ordinary boys have a song called Panic Attack? No, I didn't. It's really upbeat and I listened to it yesterday and I was giggling and I didn't know if it was too soon to share the joke with you because <laughs> it was a really upbeat kind of panic attack, panic attack, here we go again, another panic attack. Whoa, so he obviously really enjoyed his panic attacks. Yeah, it's all about anxiety and all sorts of things that we discuss on here. Yeah, okay, I might have to have a listen to that and see if I can learn something about maybe how to manage a panic attack. Um, Although today wasn't going to be strictly a panic attack episode and I feel like maybe we should leave panic attack stories uh, for a panic attack episode because it's such a relevant topic and I think most people at some point in their... Have you ever experienced panic i think i had one recently and 
it may not be the first one, but it's probably the first time when I was aware of what it was. But I definitely, it was definitely something that I could, I've probably had two, three in my life. What, do you know what, do you know what brought it on or was it a bunch of things? I can't remember anything about it now. Yeah. That's that so, repressed. So, the, yeah, so there we go. Your, your unconscious is working away very well there. Um, or is that your conscious working on it? Either way, well done. Um, obviously, Carl Rogers is going to come up. I wouldn't necessarily say that this is like for season five when we did Mickley Chitsent Mickley, or uh-huh. as the rest of the world calls him, Mickley Chitsent Mickley, or something like that. Um, Do they? I've never heard anyone say Chitsent Mickley, but then I like Chitsent Mickley, so I'm sticking with it. Cool, cool, cool. We had our flow season where we went through the book of flow chapter by chapter, each episode, 10 episodes. And we could quite easily do that with On Becoming a Person, which I think is a much better book than flow. But I I feel like I don't want to put a boundary around Carl Rogers. I think Carl Rogers can come up as and when for anything in any context because Carl if you're listening you are always welcome here Carl is right here in the room because he died in 1987 the year I was born so I am clearly the reincarnation did you check the months to see if that works N- uh no oh, what month did you Ju- uh, July, July. So, there's a, so there's a good chance good that chance, it was yeah. before July but there's also a good chance that it was after that anyway let me let's let's try and steer this shit back on course before it gets too much into like who cares about my chicken curry? Who cares when I was born and when Carl Rogers died? And who cares about... Panic attacks? Anything that's not on a list, but we don't have a list, so I can't categorise things yeah. on, as on the list or off the list. So. I mean, I mean <laughs> it's probably the minority of people that don't enjoy a bit of chitter-chatter, especially when people are choosing to listen to radio or podcasts. Chitter chatter is a thing. But the thing is, I'm more than happy to have spontaneous chitter chatter. Uh-huh. But when you, when I have to have the chitter, ch- when I, when I, when I'm sat here, think when you, uh-huh. like I'm sat here and I feel like I've got to do the chitter chatter. Nothing interesting comes out. Absolutely but, nothing. But is it not interesting to hear about your day with your mum or your chicken curry? I can't. What I can't, No. I see. So your life is uninteresting. No, there are in plenty... essence, your life is boring. No, there are plenty of things that I think I might bring this up. But when you when you just out of the blue asked me how was how was the walk you had on Sunday? I thought, oh, walk I had on Sunday. Where did I? What was the walk on Sunday? Okay, it was that. Where did I go? I, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. I can't shut this down because that's destroying the flow. Mm-hmm. I can't bring myself to say nothing of interest. So it but so all in all that just creates a dead end. But in one of the episodes of season 6 you described yourself as being like Russell Brand and Stephen Fry. Both of whom who are very good at chitter chatter and now I'm really glad I wrote that note down in my private practice podcast scrapbook. I think I was making a joke about being able to say ludicrous things with ridiculous words. Oh. I don't think I was saying that I have the temperament or personality of either of those two people. Okay. Well, as long as I clarify that in my scratch book. If we were to have a list. I'm very dissatisfied at the moment. I'm enjoying your dissatisfaction. I'm very dissatisfied with everything I've said. I wouldn't listen to this episode. 
I would have turned it off by now. Waste of time. You're wasting my time is what I'd have thought about this. Mm. What's the subject of the episode? Don't know. What have you got that's interesting to say? Absolutely nothing. Where are you going with this? You're not going anywhere. You're veering all over the place. But hang on, hang on. Yes, okay. You were more excited about this episode than usual. Yes. And I'm trying to work out now. What am I doing? Am I somehow sabotaging your excitement? Potentially. Am I wrecking this because it's not something that's on my piece of paper with my notes and something I thought of. You you were excited. You have done everything right here. I have failed. I had nothing to say when you asked me about my walk. I had I was totally unable to uh to follow your jolly, upbeat, spontaneous prompts. I couldn't do it. And then what did I do? I sabotaged the whole thing and said this is awful and I wouldn't listen to it. Yeah, but what 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 you're believing is that your impression of what's going on is the right impression and potentially the only impression that people who are listening to this, our listener, dear listener, would have. And that's not true. Some people enjoy listening to irreverent conversation between two people with... I want to say diametrically, but I might have just invented that word. Diametrically opposite personalities. And things will come up. But you're, what are you? What is this? What is happening for you here that I can just bounce on and be very excited that we don't have a list? And even stopped you from writing a list just before we started the episode. What's happening to you, you know? Because like, that's interesting to me. I know for a fact, which means that this isn't truth or fact at all. It's <laughs> it's something that I assign value to for myself. So it's of no relevance to anyone else. But mm-hmm. to me, it is true that the only good episodes are when there's some kind of structure from start to end, a, a, a general plot, an idea that you can summarise at the beginning so the listener knows roughly what to expect. And then the fun is in finding places to humorously or interestingly go veer slightly off and then come back so that there's discipline. I hate open-ended, rambling, undisciplined stoner chat. Oh. And that's I'm saying that is true for me, not for you or for anyone else in the world. This is true for me. So that's not to say that I have to have the conversation with someone who is exactly like me because you're not you're someone completely different to me but if I know in my head that there's there's a structure then it doesn't matter if you start talking about something else or if I go off on a humorous tangent or whatever because to an extent there is a narrative structure but we have been sitting here together and in the other two private practice podcast studios talking and building a narrative. The narrative is that of two people with very different experiences talking about psychology, talking about psychoanalysis, talking about mental health. That's the story. I'm struggling with with this with, with Carl Rogers the easiest thing would be to do the Carl Rogers season every chapter of the book just like the flow season everyone's on the same page we all know what it is but we're not doing that and I don't know if we can talk about Carl Rogers 
because the listener may know nothing about Carl Rogers, so we don't we can't say anything without an introduction to who he was and what he believed, which we maybe could do right now. Unless you don't want to do that, in which case, how do we talk about Carl Rogers? I definitely think you should introduce Carl Rogers. Would you like to start by introducing a bit uh, about Carl Rogers because you introduced him to me? Why did yeah? I think I no. I asked you on a, one of our unconscious episodes why you gave me the book, so you've answered that. But what is it about Carl Rogers that you like? Let me take you back to the early noughties, two thousand and two, two thousand and three, when a youngish man was just undertaking his nursing his mental health nursing qualification and was somewhat um dissatisfied with how he saw and interpreted therapists being um and he would raise this with various different people including therapists that there was something something almost almost critical or alien or um or other in uh, in the way that they behaved in the mannerisms that they um employed and uh, i was talking to you know a number of different people about this how i felt like there was a kind of a almost like a sneering from therapists towards mental health nurses and someone asked me something along the lines of well actually maybe that's something about you rather than about them and they followed it up with introducing me to Carl Rogers. Carl Rogers, to me, is like the Father Christmas of therapists. He's like the um, the granddad of therapists. He's like the you know the, the kind uncle. He's like the you know he's very much in that uh, Irving Yalom school of uncley, kindly, Father Christmassy therapists. And there's more than one of them, obviously. And so I started reading his book uh, on becoming a person. Uh, and there's another book as well, which is a bit more technical. And I just found him to be warm and kind and realistic and relatable and accessible. And I agree with all that, but there's mm-hmm. way more to him. And if you just said he's realistic and accessible, I'd think boring and you can safely ignore uh, that unless uh. you've got all the time in the world and absolutely nothing to do. And you're willing to just fill your time with filler in order to potentially get somewhere interesting later on. Whereas I think Carl Rogers is the nub of the matter. Yes, but I thought that you were going to do that, but you were asking me why, you know, why Carl Rogers? What yeah, but why Carl Rogers? Because his ideas are, as far as I'm concerned, you could say devastating, groundbreaking. It's not like he says something like, uh, oh, well, it's very interesting to note that when a child is given a marshmallow and told that it's it's not sort of like a he's not known for a titbit about childhood psychology or a titbit about um attachment theory or something he his the, the book on becoming a person is an entire life philosophy that can completely change your outlook on everything it's so therefore i would compare that with something like stoicism or i could compare it with one of the uh, most well-known philosophers or anyone who has delivered who's given sort of like follow these steps your state of mind will be different and therefore everything in your life will be different and it's not just going to be one thing compare that in stark contrast with someone who might say something like 
um, if you adopt a four hour week, you'll be less tired or something. So they're, they're, de- you're, they're dealing with a specific issue, like you're tired. Although, I mean, you could say for Carl Rogers, he's, you've got lots of anxiety. That's a specific issue. So have some unconditional positive regard or something. But I, I don't, I can't think of a good example. I want an example of the opposite of Carl Rogers giving an entire life philosophy that applies to everything you do and changes all of your life. I want an example of someone who might say, here's a little thing that will change one tiny bit of your life, even if that's in a big way and will have consequences. That's not what On Becoming a Person is, as I see it. Does that make sense? Mm. Who who's got a life hack? Like maybe Jamie Oliver has got a, comes out with a diet. There you go. That's not a whole life philosophy. Changing how many carbohydrates you have isn't a life philosophy. It's a lifestyle habit that fits into a life philosophy. I think that Carl Rogers on becoming a person is a whole life philosophy, and I think it has been not let in to the recognised gated community of famous philosophy. Who knows why, but maybe because he's a psychologist and doesn't call himself a philosopher. Therefore, he didn't even try to get into the school of, of human philosophy. So what is different about your introduction to Carl Rogers and my introduction to Carl Rogers? You said that he's accessible and a nice guy and likeable. And relatable. And relatable. As but, opposed to... But a- so is Lorraine Kelly on ITV. And who changes their life because of Lorraine Kelly on ITV? But she's warm, accessible, relatable, uh, kind, friendly, funny... Yeah, but she's a TV personality. Carl Rogers is that in a world of academic, um, lofty, superior therapists. Okay, so that is exactly what I said. Is but that is that's that's no, that's not what you said. Yeah, you I said I said I just thought thought of therapists as alien, other, and sneering until Carl Rogers. Until Carl Rogers. Okay. And you have recently read the book. You've seen it as a complete philosophy, like yoga, as opposed to like doing a session of yoga. But even then, yoga is an activity. I'm no, 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 no. Yoga is not. Yoga is an entire philosophy. Okay, fine. I've never done it, so yeah. I don't know what I'm talking about. But and and, and I well, I would see an entire philosophy as being something. I mean, like you could use uh, theism as an entire philosophy, as in. I believe in God. I believe that according to the, the, how I should live my life is to follow the word of the Bible so that I will be a good person and then I will be rewarded at the end of life on earth, which involves suffering with an afterlife in, hell, in heaven, which <laughs> with an afterlife in heaven, which will just be eternal bliss. And that is a whole life philosophy and that determines everything you do. Like when you're in the shop, and you get that temptation to steal something. You think, no, God is watching me. And I will be punished for this. I will go into purgatory for this. I will not steal. Whereas the person who doesn't believe in God and doesn't and thinks that they can get away with things and that the law is rubbish anyway, steals. 
so the person who believes in God, and, I, and I'm using that example you could, as a positive thing, you could also say that uh, they uh, believe that uh, God wants them to spread their religion at all costs and therefore any kind of bombings can be justified if you're bombing the enemy and furthering the influence of your particular religion. So I'm not necessarily saying that religion is just a wonderful thing that stops people from shoplifting and gives them a uh -huh, uh -huh. divine picture of heaven to get excited about at the end of their life. But that's a that's a philosophy that changes your life, or it could be um, absurdism, such as uh, the idea that there is no meaning in the world, but to just surrender to no meaning is basically suicide. And so, in order to live your life, you have to embrace the the absurd. And often the uh, the little story of Sisyphus push, pushing a rock up a mountain um, as a punishment to the gods. And every time he pushes the rock to the top of the mountain, it gets pushed back down to the bottom again. He has to go back down and push it back up again. And that is eternal. Or that, 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 that's for his entire life. Um, I, can't, I can't remember if that's for eternity or for his finite life. But either way, it's a lot of pushing a rock up a hill. And... The gist goes that if you're an absurdist, you recognise that this is absurd and that there's no more meaning in pushing a rock up a hill than in curing cancer. And so if you are the... Someone else can cure cancer, you're the person who pushes a rock up a hill, so you may as well do it with a smile on your face. Uh -huh. and, okay, um, okay. and we talked about that in our Utopia episode a little bit. That's a philosophy that changes your life because everything you do like for example when you're stuck in traffic and you're going nowhere instead of looking around thinking I, I hate my life the universe gives me no meaning my life is pathetic I'm just the loser who sits in traffic I may as well kill myself and then you're de hmm. in a depressed state or thinking you're desperately trying to find meaning and it's just frustrating that you're stuck in traffic and you're not getting any closer to those vague unobtainable goals Instead of any of that, you can embrace the fact that traffic is absurd, no more or less meaningful than anything else. And so what can you do about it? You can listen to private practice podcasts and enjoy that heavy traffic and hope that the podcast and the traffic have exactly the same duration so that you can pull into your destination just as you hear the, it's a wonderful story. <laughs> yes. Now, backtracking somewhat. So you're saying that the reason why you're so pro Carl Rogers is because you think that you have read an ethos and a philosophy with which to live by and you were disappointed in my introduction because I explained that it was something I read when I was studying and it had something positive in for me. Yeah, you made it sound like Carl Rogers and is interchangeable with Lorraine Kelly. I didn't, but okay. To me. Okay, well, maybe you should talk about Carl Rogers. No, 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 no. carry on. We've, we've, that's that sorted. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we've, both, we've both stated why we think he's significant now. Well, I know, well, you interrupted me, so I didn't actually get to finish. Okay, we'll finish. 
Uh, I'm somewhat disheartened by the whole thing, you know? Like... Was that, okay, is there a situation where we are both enthusiastic about this podcast? Because I am the, I've now got the oomph that I totally lacked when you were had your giddy high at the start. Mm-hmm. Maybe we just keep on sucking the enthusiasm out of each other, but I don't think that that is n- a necessity. I think we can both be equally enthusiastic and we can probably do it with unconditional positive regard for each other. <laughs> Yeah, you never know. You never know. Um, you give us a bit of background in unconditional positive regard. The key core concept of Carl Rogers on becoming a person. Carl Rogers developed the theory of unconditional positive regard out of his one-to-one psychotherapy with clients through whatever processes of his own experimentation to whatever extent they were informed and to whatever extent it was guesswork. And do you, do you remember like what like the the circumstances in which he sort of discovered this idea that you think unconditionally positively about the other person in the room. You withhold judgment. You catch yourself when you're thinking things that might be critical or negative towards another person and you shelve them basically. You put them on one side. You say I can come back to that, but actually right now, I'm just going to look at this person like they're good, like they're worthy. What were the circumstances? I don't understand the question, but you have just described a bit about what are the conditions of unconditional positive regard, but in the context of a question, I don't understand. Oh, I'm just wondering if, because you recently read the book and I haven't read it for 18 years, whether you re- he described at what moment he had this eureka and and thought, Fuck! I should actually only think positively about my clients, and this is why. Oh, I see. I don't know. This book isn't his autobiography. It's it's a collection of papers, and so each one has some kind of introduction with some context. I won't lose your page, James. I have these things called fingers, which serve as bookmarks. But it's 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 not a life story it's landmarks of his discoveries in chronological order but without the kind of and i was sitting on a rock gazing out at the midnight sky after i'd just eaten a delicious risotto when it suddenly dawned on me that unconditional positive regard was there's none it's not so much like that it's more on Friday the 17th of February 1951 I was giving a lecture to the University of Wisconsin and they asked me to talk about this and I wasn't sure about it at first but then I decided these are the areas I should probably cover and when I arrived I was greeted with a room full of people who all had this kind of appearance and I started talking and soon realised that I was talking to people who had never heard this kind of thing before. Here's what I said and then you get a scientific paper. So that's the gist of the book. Although, even when he writes scientific papers, he writes them in a very compelling, I'd say, page-turny way. He has clients over 20 years or so, and gradually he notices that he's getting results when, when certain conditions are in place, and he notices what the conditions are. And it turns out, 20 years later, that he can say, here are the conditions, and I'm calling them unconditional positive regard. And the conditions are that I do not judge the person, I listen to them and respond to what they're saying without judgment, 
Um, I have no critique to deliver. I have no verdict to give. I have no strict analytical process to do away from the client. I am simply a space for them to be able to talk in a way that essentially evaporates all their defense mechanisms. And that is something that they don't get with anyone else in their life. And that is my role as the therapist. I'm not some thinky intellectual who just listens to their endless monologue, goes away and analyzes it as a, as a, as a, as a studied knower of things, of important things, comes to a conclusion and delivers that verdict to the person when That's, they come back. So we agree. The reason why Carl Rogers was so fucking incredible was because he got rid of the lofty position of the I know and you are the helpless patient and introduced a whole new era in psychotherapy of I'm going to accept you no matter what you are or who you are or what you've done and I'm going to produce a space in this room where the two of us can just talk and we can talk and I'm not going to judge you and you're going to be able to say whatever you want and I'm going to think with you and I'm going to feel with you, but I'm not going to judge you. I don't know best. You know best. This is a new space. Anyway, when I first read that, this was in stark contrast to how I saw most therapists behaving. And of course, I didn't generally see therapists in the therapy room. I'd see them in team meetings or at talks or at lectures or in the lecture theatre at university um, or in a hospital multidisciplinary team, you know, giving their judgments on a patient. But the overall impression that I got of therapists and psychotherapists and analysts and psychologists was that they thought that they knew best because they'd learnt a bunch of shit in university or college or therapy school and and they were judging the client and when I read this it was much more akin to what mental health nurses do or good mental health nurses do which is provide a space for someone to just be they still need to know their stuff you can't just take who still needs to know their stuff so Carl Rogers needs to know the nature of the psyche needs to know ideas of the unconscious needs to understand the yes of physical course. and yeah. mental he wasn't uh, just some, some bloke that opened a door and said come in here and sit down and luckily i know nothing because otherwise i'd be judging you but this is again where i'm differentiating him from lorraine kelly because lorraine kelly could theoretically just sit there and not judge you and allow you to speak and just be there for you but she wouldn't let, necessarily let, let me tell be... you something about lorraine kelly because okay. i've actually met lorraine okay, kelly good i've been on lorraine kelly's program with my dad and actually she she did create an environment that was very much non-judgmental i mean I, it's very unfair of me picking on lorraine kelly because i don't know her and for all i know she could have read on becoming a person and could have adopted it as her own personal life philosophy but i don't know her as being a person who does that you also I just, don't know whether she's got a degree in psychology and done further therapy and counseling courses exactly i have no clue i just know her 
I know she, she's the first name that came to mind as someone who just has to fill time on morning TV being fun and bubbly and entertaining and basically following the script and not going into weird territory just mm-hmm. to you know keep mm-hmm. the normal people watching at that mm-hmm. time of the morning on a normal TV channel that's her remit as I see it so maybe she is an intellectual um, and maybe she knows way more about the psyche than even Carl Jung ever managed to conceptualize Mm -hmm. but But, probably not but probably not so she might accidentally or and when I say accidentally I mean she doesn't necessarily know that she's systematically doing it she might actually facilitate unconditional positive regard in her interactions with other people it might be that it is part of her nature uh, by accident or on purpose but not specifically as I see it to be a psychotherapist and to follow semi-scientifically uh, a rigid structure so that there are not random variables so that you can predict. So, and so, what, so the difference is then Carl Rogers can say these are the semi-scientific conditions required. With these, I can predict a positive outcome. Without these... Everything is random and there's no way I can predict the outcome and it could go either way and that's not professional therapy. That's just amateur guesswork. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in, in, in many ways, the book on becoming a person talks about, not in many ways, there are many different things in the book. It isn't just about unconditional positive regard. The book is about the process of healing and the process of change that someone who is in therapy is trying to go through. Am I right? He describes it, the whole thing as a breakdown in communication. So a person comes into therapy because they have a breakdown in internal uh, conversation, so ideas that are repressed, basically everything that we talked about in our little unconscious Mm mini-series. They also probably have a breakdown in communication with everyone in their life so they're not honest with whoever their partner their children their boss their neighbor their friends yeah uh they're not able to talk openly with anyone they're defensive about everything or they have a completely distorted view of the world because they only hear what they want to hear and they're incapable of saying accurately what they're feeling and sensing they can only essentially pr themselves and say they can only stick to the script that they've either made up or internalised from something else in their life. And so he sees his role as breaking down those defences, which is the same as facilitating effective communication. So that's why I put a little marker in this page. I think so. I think something that you said there was so important to the listener and it's so important to me in, in that that is who... So that is what we are talking about. That is who we are talking to. We are talking to you if you recognise yourself in that. That you're PRing yourself is, is, a, is a lovely phrase. You're not saying what you really think. You're not able to express your feelings. You're not telling people about the experience that you're going through. And for whatever reason, there'll be all kinds of... um justifications in your head why you're not telling your wife what you really think right now 
like for fear of hurting them, for fear of um, the breakup of a relationship, for fear of being misunderstood, for fear of the the emotions that will come out, you know, opening the floodgates. And we, that's exactly who we're talking to in, in a very, you know, open way. We're talking about when you can't express yourself. That was a really, really clear example, like a really clear description, James. I'm going to give you kudos and 10 points for that. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that was good. A characteristic or a, a feature, a universal feature of many of the people that I have been learning about or listening to so people who have podcasts or the subjects of those podcasts and books that I've been reading recently um, videos and documentaries and things so it is to do with honesty truth which is the same as not PRing yourself saying how you feel saying what what you say has congruence with what you feel and sense and yeah, intuit yeah. and so on um, as opposed to feeling angry and thinking oh I can't express that that's not me or the other person won't like that or that's uncouth that's not done in society um, or or whatever and so and I just actually I, I do want to pause on that you feel angry I've just given the example. I feel angry, but I can't express that because no one likes that. No one wants to see me anyone angry. That's not the done thing. No one I know ever expresses their anger. If I do it, I'm the weak one. Everyone else manages to keep it, keep themselves in check. Why, why would I want to be seen as the person who can't control myself and expresses anger? And so what? Am I saying that they should just scream and roar with anger and punch people in the face? Uh, because otherwise they're not being honest. They're just they're PRing themselves. No, I'm not saying that. So it is more. It's, it is complicated and open to interpretation, and therefore open to dismissal and criticism and people getting the wrong end of the stick about what anyone is saying about any of this. But I'm not too concerned about that because people are quite good at working out what is going. What is people know when they are being incongruent they know when they're selling themselves as something that they don't feel and they also know that they're not that if they are to overturn that if they are to be more honest and to be more congruent with what they say and do related to how they sense and feel that doesn't involve screaming and yelling and punching people in the face just to be honestly angry and to make sure everyone knows that you're angry you, there are ways in which you can simply you can be civilized you can express your anger without punching someone in the face you can you can recognize that you're angry you can know that it's not good to punch people so therefore learn to take some time to just focus on the anger without reacting to it immediately in a kind of neanderthal hooligan way and then you will calm down a little bit and then you can do the communicating you can say that made me feel really angry and sorry and we can we just pause everything for a minute because it would be incongruent of me to pretend that I'm okay I'm not I've just I was just angry there and then you're being honest but you're not punching someone in the face just because it's not I'm not saying that honesty is to 
is that when you feel that rage and you want to kill someone, you have to do it, otherwise you're incongruent. No, because there are you have, you're also interacting with other people. You're, the world doesn't revolve around you. Or that's not a good way of putting it. You have to interact successfully with the other people you need in your life, so you can't go around punching people. But equally, you can't just keep anger bottled up because it's not the done thing to express it. That's not what people do. And if I express anger, everyone will know that I can't keep myself together. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's that's fair enough. I, I think I think you're wrong that everyone knows when they're PRing themselves. I think actually, you know, part of being unwell it can be a lack of insight about that a lack of understanding that what you're doing is you're being defensive by not saying what you really think or you really feel you're either protecting other people or you're protecting yourself from some kind of perceived threat or shame or indignity or embarrassment so not expressing yourself your emotions and your thoughts and your feelings and your desires clearly is way more common, uh, is, is, is incredibly common, but I think, I think it's also very common to not know that you're doing it. Yeah, so you know, I completely agree with what you've just said. I think I was, in, I was, in my mind, I was imagining when people, when people are maybe as teenagers, when they're starting to PR themselves and seeing some successes and thinking or I'm okay I'll tell you what I'm only talking about myself because I don't know what it's like for anyone else I remember at school when how many details do I not need to give here because I could spend the next two hours giving all the context of everything ever that is James Hall at school um, I knew that I didn't fit in with that which was kind of high status at the school so I couldn't catch a ball and I couldn't play a musical instrument and I could, and I wasn't very sociable. So the three, those were the three main currencies to get social success. I knew I had to weave my way in the alternative route. So I had to make people laugh, and I had to give the impression of being something that you would want to discover. Like there's more to me than meets the eye. So in other words, I need to be. I need to. I need to tease that I'm somehow interesting but not give too much away because I need to leave you wanting to get to know me and then when you and then that means that I don't have to do the socializing you do it to me and in the process I can do the only thing I know how to do which is be funny and make you remember me as opposed to ignore me so I don't have any social interactions so I knew that's what I had to do and I found that certain kind of like aspects of PRing myself were successful. Uh, I could hide things that weren't going to sell myself very well and I could push things that were. And I often did that quite successfully. And often I'd, I'd sort of like, there'd be people who would normally not pay any attention to me who would suddenly be reacting to me or talking to me or including me in something when ordinarily they wouldn't have done it and I'd go away from that later and I'd reflect on it I'd, I, in my bedroom often I'd go to bed and I'd reflect on the day and I'd be thinking that was a success I can easily picture the alternative to that situation whatever happened let's say that um, against the odds 
uh, I was included in some activity that ordinarily I would have been totally overlooked. Uh, and I think I and I and I would sort of like formulate what was it that I did that was successful that got me into that activity because it certainly wasn't my socialising abilities, it certainly wasn't my ability to catch a ball and it certainly wasn't my ability to play an instrument. But at the time I was aware that I was doing this manipulation and that it was successful. So then fast forward several years, maybe that becomes ingrained in my personality and I'm totally not aware of it anymore as an adult. Mm -hmm. But at the, I was thinking about as a teenager, I was definitely aware of PRing myself. And then maybe in my 20s, I wasn't aware of what I was doing. I think, I think though, there is a difference between PRing the self, um, like almost socially engineering your own uh, persona, your public front, and um, avoiding um, expressing yourself. I, I, you know, I, I think that's different. I think that's um, trying to, you know, place ideas into other people's heads about who you are rather than expressing who you know you are. And the other is or sorry rather than expressing who who you think you are at that time like trying to produce produce yourself and being able to be honest about who you are um what you're feeling what you're going through what your emotions are what your experience is like i think they're different things but it sort of fits with the pring kind of thing you're putting on you're still putting on a, a front but there are different reasons for that one is because you want to be as a teenager you want to be included you want to be popular you wanted to be seen as something that you didn't believe you were um you know as as adults who hopefully know ourselves a little better the, this thing that might bring us into the therapy room is where we're unable to express things that's you know we kind of know that they're there, but we, we might not know that we're repressing them or that we're avoiding them or that we're uh, defending against difficult situations. Um, they're similar but different, I think. One is a public relations exercise in order to promote an ideal and the other is based on a kind of... Um, so I'm not really following what's one and two. So what, So if I'm one, I'm a teenager knowingly PRing myself to be included in a conversation or an activity like, or something. Like most teenagers are. You know? Okay, so that's one. What's two and how is it different to that? Two is um, avoid, avoiding the difficult real life relationships you have and not being able to express yourself and feeling uh trapped or unwell because or depressed or anxious because you can't or you don't express how you truly think okay, and so feel. In number two there is a breakdown in in integration in in the mind between something that's unconscious and everything that's conscious whereas everything I was doing as a teenager was consciously plotting how to interact in order to get results and monitoring the success and adapting. Yeah, yeah, with... turning yourself into the character that you wanted to be, where the other one is 
But I mean, like I say, there are loads of similarities. In essence, you are also therefore avoiding the person that you really are, who might actually be a great person. And as a teenager, we like a lot of us would struggle with thinking that we could be a great person just as we are, you know, a good person that people like. But as adults, there's much more awareness uh, or fear around hurting people, losing relationships or... Um, you know, like you say, expressing anger. People don't want to express anger because they fear it will come out in rage or violence or aggression or passive aggression. So they, you know, if they are engineering the persona, they're doing it like to protect or defend. Um, well, then, OK, so back to Carl Rogers. Yeah. He was, I don't know if he used these words exactly, but he was more or less saying that everything was a defence mechanism that so everyone who came into his private practice it didn't matter what they said their problem was like oh I'm not having a fulfilling relationship with my husband and I think he's cheating on me it doesn't matter what the words were the point was that everything was um what what he heard them saying essentially was I am very defensive I have defense mechanisms and or other people in my life have defense mechanisms and so that's why the idea of unconditional positive regard was that the only way to overcome the problem as they saw it my husband and I are not talking we're not communicating very well we row that that's the problem that they present but as he saw it his 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 role wasn't to think okay how can I work out the compatibility how can I get to know you and hear what you say about your husband and map where you're going wrong and sort that out. It was more a case of, it's none of my business what you do or say with your husband. What I can see here is someone who has defense mechanisms. And so that is inevitably going to be the problem with the husband. And if I get you to dissolve your defense mechanisms here in the room, you will be able to solve whatever the deal is with your husband because... I don't see how a therapist can solve a context that they are not in. So the therapist is not in the kitchen where the argument took place last night. The therapist is in the room in the here and now with the person who has defence mechanisms. So the therapist is just there to help that person dissolve their defence mechanisms so that they can go off and solve their problems. That's I think that's a pretty good gist not to self-congratulate but a pretty good gist of what Carl Rogers was getting at the idea that most if not all of the problems that came into his practice were essentially problems of having defense mechanisms breaking down communication with other people in their life or breaking down internal communication and so if he could provide the controlled semi-scientific conditions to evaporate those defense mechanisms they would know what it was like to to be honest and to express themselves with someone who listens and doesn't judge them and how that feels and what a positive change that makes and that gives them everything they need to be able to solve their problems externally. Carl Rogers doesn't need to get the gossip, in other words. He doesn't need to know the tidbits of, of, of what the husband said last night or, or what the affair involved two years ago necessarily or any of that. Like he's a, 
an emotional detective because he is solving the set of all problems as opposed to the individual the, not not this not the specific incident of the argument or the affair or whatever he's solving the set of all the problems so the relationship with the husband the relationship with the children the relationship with the boss the relationship with the friend the neighbor all of those will be to some extent affected by the same defense mechanisms so he is focusing on the defense mechanism and now james hall speaking so don't take this as fact um who cares about the husband who cares about the children who cares about the neighbor this, those are gossipy specifics that have got nothing to do with the here and now in the therapy room whereby we're trying to evaporate those defense mechanisms yeah and i think i think that is it is across the board in psychotherapy um not in psychology and cognitive uh, behavioral therapy but in in psychotherapy the here and now is just so important you know the the feelings that arise in the two people in the room but carl rogers you know core concept of unconditional positive regard was to to yeah like you say enable this um space to develop for two people for one person to be able to express to another without defenses how they think and how they feel what they think what their fears are and to to almost have like a dry run of how it can go in a in a in a perfect world which of course doesn't exist outside of the ther the therapy room but the person who has experienced that might begin to develop strength well we'll get onto that in a minute <laughs> but uh just two quick things what well quick or otherwise um uh, one is just to finish something that I started to say and then didn't finish it. Um, among among lots of different, let's call them schools of thought, to, 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 to be as vague as possible, things that different people say, whether they're contemporary people who have podcasts or ancient people who carved their ideas into stone, um, there is kind of like a general consensus to do with truth to do with being to do with honesty as a necessary feature of many life philosophies i think that's a better way of putting it so for example much hated jordan peterson um you can hate him because you're a marxist you can hate him because you're left wing you can hate him because of all sorts of things that whereby you are completely opposite in your worldview to him but when he talks about honesty he is not really talk. He's not. He's, he's being. He's not being especially subjective. I would say about the known um, clinical psychology benefits of honesty. When Christians talk about honesty, you don't have to believe that the purpose of honesty is to please God and to get into heaven, to recognise the truth in why honesty is a function of Christianity, because it's not just owned by Christianity. When uh, my guru, Sam Harris, who uh -huh, is a uh -huh. very scientific, left-wing, quite rigid, I think way too rigid, left-brained, scientifically minded, he's, he's like militantly atheist, which I find very boring. And um, but he talks about honesty 
so the 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 god-fearing christian talks about honesty the militant atheist talks about honesty the anti-marxist clinical psychologist talks about honesty and 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 on and on i mean i'm sure that i don't know let's say the black lives matter activist talks about honesty carl rogers talks about honesty lorraine kelly talks about honesty what are you getting at what are you getting at it's Lots something of people that is common honesty it's something that is common regardless of left or right-wing politics, regardless of theist or atheist, regardless of ancient or contemporary, regardless of any of that, yeah. honesty is one of the few things that are consistent. Whereas if you look at, for example... What did you mean the idea that honesty is a good thing? Yes. Okay. Because if you look at something else... I'm not sure I'd agree with you with right-wing politics, but okay. Why? Because I think that they... Uh, in in many ways that they, um, from my perspective, like to hide the truth about things. They they strongly like to hide the truth about things, um, and they don't like to give the facts. And so I don't think that right wing politics is all about the truth and well, the facts. Okay, well, and honesty. This, I don't want to open a can of worms, but um, you just did. But I just did. Um, this this is where every individual selects from infinite facts in the world the ones that subjectively have the most meaning and relevance to themselves and they construct their worldview and they say things that other people are think are lies but to them it is the truth it is honesty and when they speak the truth which is very subjective uh, to them someone else thinks you're lying and thinks that you're talking rubbish yeah but what i'm saying is that so let's say someone extremely right wing says something that millions of people would disagree with but there's a difference between them saying that and feeling like it's their personal honest truth or not being able to say that thing yeah so when i say honesty i don't mean everyone in the world has to agree that this is scientific truth fact unquestionable you're talking about to, then to be genuine okay genuine yeah to being, be to be true to the self yes to thine own self be true but i don't i personally don't see what's d different between being genuine and being honest because that I don't know of anything that is... I mean, there are the laws of physics, but there are very few things that you can easily say are absolutely universally true. And if we discover something about... If we discover through quantum physics that what we thought were the laws of physics actually aren't, then, then everything that was believed to be absolute truth is no longer truth. I don't think there is absolute truth. I think there's just whatever best knowledge anyone has in their totally narrow view at any one given time which could change five seconds later so yeah, i don't disagree with you but what are you getting at so the, i'm getting at expressing that which you believe to be true in this moment in the here and now to thine own self be true as opposed to you don't seem to like that i've said it twice now You're okay not saying, that's yeah, fine that's the one that's yes. that's the one that's it to thine own self be true yeah okay as opposed to willingly or unknowingly blocking that from coming out yeah 
cool. There's that, and everyone seems to agree on that. Yes, regardless of whether they're right-wing, left-wing, ancient, contemporary, uh, a believer or an atheist. Mm. It's sort of across the board. Well, apart from Machiavelli, of course. He, well, he was like totes against that, right? We're going to get on. Well, not necessarily specifically him, but we're going to get onto that. But the the, the oh, only yeah. other thing that I that I think is useful for the listener, seeing as we did two episodes on this, but they are archived from a previous mm. um, that existence. Re- that reminds one of our listeners. Can you get on with what you promised? Uh, the, the what what is the here and now? Because in season. Two, I think, yeah, season two of the podcast. We had two episodes on the here and now, and that's because I had just read Irvin Yalom's Love Sex Executioner. I mean, it's still funny, James, right? Um, and so, yeah, so for the listener who has not listened to seasons one and two, um, we talked a lot about Irvin Yalom and the book Love's Executioner, which is an excellent book. And every single time I, men- I, I mention the book, I... What is it when you awkwardly emphasis? That's it. I put an I put a deliberately jokey emphasis as opposed to emphasis on oh, the right, title of the right, book right. to turn it into a joke. So instead of loves executioner, I say loves sex executioner. Yeah, and we're still all laughing from season two. So you know. So yeah. So sorry about that. Um, what? What is the here and now for someone who doesn't know what that means? Other than they might think that you're talking about like a time code, like if you're a filmmaker, the here and now, or the, like if you're watching live TV, the here and now is just what's on BBC okay, the here, news the here channel. The here and now is about being present in the moment. I guess mindfulness talks a lot about the here and now, being present, doing whatever it is that you are doing, or if you're doing nothing, stopping and taking yourself taking the focus out from your internal world and being present in the external world touch but, sensation but or you can tell me it's something else no 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 it's what you said but i think you missed the vital thing that i found life-changingly useful when you talk about the internal world that would have always been completely vague to me what's he talking about the thing that the thing, really? the thing that smacked me in the face was the idea of constantly living in the past and the future. So the, when you're talking about the internal world, that is where humans have evolved, unlike, as far as we can tell, other animals, to be able to conceptualise the future and remember the past. Yeah. And because you can do that in your head, there's no limit to how much you can do that. And you can therefore only do that in your life and never pay attention to the to the here and now. So, I mean, yes, to a greater or lesser extent. So talking about the internal world, and we've just spent a whole, um, in fact, almost all, almost all of what we talk about is about the internal world. The listening to your internal monologue, for the most part, we all have one. Uh, engaging with yourself in your conscious mind, uh, thinking about things, memories, daydreaming, uh, envisioning the future, planning, um, worrying, um, joking with yourself, telling yourself a story. Um, Revisiting the past and editing history according to your current feelings and 
Yeah, your internal world. But it could, would also be thinking, you know, things like, you know, academically um, pondering a question or uh, working out how to write a letter or an essay or a... rationalizing. So like something weird happens, you see someone, you know, in the street and they ignore you and you spend the rest of the day thinking about that. And you come up with no, there's, there's no limit to the creativity of the fiction that you might conclude was the truth about that scenario. Uh, the more, but so that is, that's dwelling on the past. So if I am trying, if I'm creating some ludicrous uh, rationalization in my in consciousness about why that person ignored me, oh, it must be because, and then I, and then whatever follows from that. Yeah, that's your internal world. Yeah, that is the internal world that is dwelling on the past, rationalizing a moment that is not now. Whereas the here and now is how am I sat? what have you just said and how can I best respond to it? What are you saying right now? How am I feeling right now? What is in my environment right now? That's the here and now. Yeah, but and, and also the state of flow. Um, please see previous podcast. Um, being present in what you are doing. Why do you ask? Just because you mentioned the here and now that that everything that we've just said is quite specific so i've tried to incorporate the specifics of the things that we've said today so like the here and now is not just whatever's randomly now and switching on the tv that's what's now that like switching on the tv is not the here and now i i don't feel satisfied by saying your internal world it is specific I, I feel like if you just say to someone the here and now is what's going on in your head. In this episode, we have given the difference between Carl Rogers being approachable and accessible compared with Lorraine Kelly, who's not a psychotherapist. In this episode, we have explained the difference between uh, to thine self be true and scientific laws of physics as truth. In this episode, so that's so we have given a lot of context as to what these throwaway things unconditional positive regard the here and now truth instead of just instead of just assuming the listener knows what we're thinking we have actually unpacked them is what i'm saying in this episode i completely agree we have unpacked that fudge but i am now feeling somewhat psychotic because i don't understand why you're telling me what we've just done that's a nice little link so Psychopaths. Now. <laughs> How is that? No. Where is the link? I, listen, I want. I, I almost want you to keep this episode unedited, so that, <laughs> so that I can listen back and think that I haven't lost my mind in believing that we said what those things were, and then you said back to me, "No, this is what those things are," and repeated oh, no, 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 exactly no. what we just said. No, I know I repeated what we just said. For why? I picture myself as the listener and I picture myself before reading Irvin Yalom when I didn't know what the hell the here and now was. And if someone had said to me, it's what's going on in your head right now, that wouldn't have answered anything. And so I'm just clarifying that 
Yeah. What we have packed. Yes. The fudge we have packed into this episode is an answer to that question, what is the here and now? If you are listening to this episode with a conscious awareness that you're allowing the sound to go into your mind and you are listening to it and the words are going in and you're feeling the sensation of listening and your feet are on the ground and you're enjoying the experience and you're not thinking about the person you passed on the street and you're not worrying about what you're having for dinner but you are there in the room and the only things that you are experiencing are the sensation of your body as well as the sound going in and potentially occasionally you will catch yourself thinking about the topics or the concepts from this podcast you are you know as much as any lay person can experiencing the here and now if you stop listening to the podcast and simply solely put your feet on the ground experience that sensation experience the sensation of breath and allow yourself to be in that moment in in the here and now you are experiencing the here and now rather than being in your mind like you said thinking about past or future i feel like we've now said this four times so conversely listener if i'm now waking you up from your daydreams if you haven't been listening to a word we've said up until this point you have not been in the here and now stop immediately rewind and listen to it so you know what it is (laughs) so psychopaths <laughs> what does has psychopaths ha- so, so okay, no, we okay, said okay, here right, and now so. we said here and now why had we said here and now that we would then need to repeat for who knows five times what the here and now was what had that come from you had said there are two things that you want to pop back to uh one of them was i can't well, remember one now of, one of them was that to, to thine self be true. To thine is, own self be true. Yes. To thine own self be true is common across multiple schools of thought. Yep. Ancient uh, and modern, etc. So this is sort of wrapping things up that you just wanted to. No, I'm no, I'm not wrapping things up because to you wrapping things up means this is the end of the podcast. I want to talk about psychopaths. Yeah. Okay. Well, we can definitely start to think about psychopaths in this episode. If we hadn't spent 10 minutes repeating ourselves on what the here and now is. We've got plenty of time to talk about psychopaths, I think. Do you disagree? Mm, I do disagree, but carry on. Psychopaths! If you disagree, does that mean that you definitely don't want to give all that you've got to give to talk about psychopaths? Yeah, that is right. I don't want to give all that I've got to give to talk about psychopaths. Because psychopaths... I've got a lot to say about psychopaths. I have a lot to say about psychopaths. So is that the next episode then? I think probably it is the next episode, but I'm interested but to what, what why? you're connecting. Yes, why? Yes. Okay. why? We can't end this episode without, uh, like, without the why. I am here now. I am here now. Okay, so I have finished reading On Becoming a Person and have been left with the thought of total clarity as to what Carl Rogers was saying, perfectly effective communication. He is the master of communication. His whole life was on facilitating effective communication, um, solving the problem of a breakdown in communication. And he has divinely written this book with the communication that means that I have got to the end of the book and I have taken it all in. There was not a page in this book where I was sort of glossing over it, dipping in, 
I was in the here and now hanging on every word he wrote in that book. It was wonderfully written. And so, and at the end of it, having taken it all in so comprehensively, uh-huh. at least as far as I'm concerned, I mean, as effective as communication can be. Okay. I am saying that I took it in comprehensively and I don't care if you agree or not. Okay. Uh, and, uh, um, and, it, and it, 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 so whilst that was total clarity... I was simultaneously thrown into a whirlwind of confusion. Uh-huh. Like the world suddenly made no sense to me anymore after reading that book. Why is it that that book was written in the 1950s and now 70 years later, after there has been more than enough time for the world to catch up with Carl Rogers and for people to have, for the word to have dissipated amongst, uh, around, to every corner of the world, that unconditional positive regard is the way to communicate with other human beings, is the way to break down defences that in, let's say, close to 100% of cases in one-to-one therapy results in personal development and a positive feeling of someone's life massively improving why has that message not in 70 years 70 years why has that message not got out of the therapy room and into every corner of society so that everyone knows what unconditional positive regard is everyone tries to their best to to adopt that to whatever extent in their life and many many a conflict from the smallest one-on-one relationship to the biggest USA versus Russia, Middle East, China versus America, whatever, the biggest global conflict. Why is it that the overwhelmingly convincing and overwhelmingly proven successful quasi-scientifically in one-to-one therapy view of Carl Rogers, why is that not just basically the blueprint of human behavior in 2020 70 years later so that was my total confusion and you looked at me and last night when i when when i brought this up and you just basically shot me down by saying well and this is i'm i'm dramatizing this slightly in a minute i'll stop talking and you, and give you all the space to react you shot that down and said well duh james because the world is even if they only amount to five percent of the population the world is full of psychopaths and it's the psychopaths who are in charge who are in power who have the influence and you try being unconditionally positive in your regard to a psychopath and see how far that gets you and you looked at me as if to say duh Microphone drop. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I did. And I think that, you know, talking about psychopaths, which um, which is like a very small subset, I think, of, um, in, in essence, antisocial personality disorder. I mean, I'll double check that before our next episode. Um, it, it, in essence, it is a, a psychological state. It is a developmental condition that is very very difficult to alter and change and obviously the psycho you know psychopaths what that means to most people is someone who is 
aggressive and manipulative and violent quite often. But many, many of the psychopaths that I would be talking about aren't aggressive or violent. Um, in fact, they play by the rules to the highest level um, to achieve what it is that they want. Um, uh, but yes, so the other thing that popped into my mind, and we will talk about that in detail, and we will come back to why hasn't the world, and you also said the same thing with, after reading Jung, you said, why, oh, why has the world not adopted Jungian ideas and concepts? And why is he not, is there not a statue of him that wouldn't need to be pulled down? Well, I don't um, know. Some people thought he was a Nazi. Yeah, I don't think I mean, he was he, a Nazi. He wasn't a Nazi at all. If you read The Undiscovered Self, he basically devotes an entire book to criticising totalitarian regimes and is very specifically talking about the Nazi occupation of Germany and Stalin's occupation of uh, Russia. So yeah. he's not a Nazi. The bastards, yeah. Um, so so we will look at that. Um, but the, the, other, the other thing that popped into my mind now that perhaps you're missing is that in order for unconditional positive regard to, to work, um, in, in essence, I think you, you need to be from the, the broadly from the same have the same goals have the same cultural and i'm using that word really loosely like cultural ideals and ideas so um if you if you're you know you're talking about christianity you're talking about religion and having this like you know pure belief that you're doing things for god if you then have this as a core part of yourself and the person that you are trying to have unconditional positive regard for has the, the polar opposite views to you and, and, and those views are um, only going to lead to conflict, then the unconditional positive regard, it, 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 can't, it doesn't work because the two parties aren't signed up for it. The two people, in essence, need to be signed up for it. Even if that is an unconscious contract or an unknown contract, you know, someone comes to therapy to get help. The therapist is there to offer help. They're signed up to the same thing. They're, they're in the same cultural bubble. Whereas bring two people together. I am an extreme Satanist who believe that all Christians should be burnt at the stake. You know, I'm, I'm being ridiculous, of course. And I am a Christian who believes that the devil is God's enemy then you're not going to get those two people to sign up to unconditional positive regard. <laughs> you know, whereas if... Take, if a, take a Manchester United fan and an Arsenal fan and pump them up on Stella and put them in a, a very humid, red, sweaty room together and see how much unconditional positive regard they show each other. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's, there's lots of factors in... Yeah, I mean, one of the examples that you were given when we were talking yesterday was about how uh, Carl Rogers started experiments in education and you were baffled that not all educationalists, all educators, all teachers, all lecturers used Carl Rogers' um, theories to get the best out of their... Or not necessarily... Yes, but not necessarily that extreme. Like, why is it, why is it so unheard of, as I'm aware? I mean, I'm not expecting everywhere to follow one discipline and I probably wouldn't like that that's a if Carl Rogers was some kind of dictator of the world totalitarian totalitarian yeah. then I would be waving my young book around saying stop listening to Carl Rogers because you're all becoming mass-minded drones yeah, but yeah. if but I would expect 
that it is such a good idea that it would be relatively common, not at all marginalized and certainly not unheard of. Um, yes. So I am suggesting that in Carl Rogers' experiments with education, that the people in the room, the the pupils, the students and the him, pigs. the guinea pigs, well, they were all signed up to it. They were aware. No, no, no. That's that. That's why I found it so interesting. But they were there to learn. They were there yeah. to get the best from their education. Yeah, but that doesn't explain why education is not to a let's say 40 percent extent Carl Rogersified. well one of the things that you pointed out yesterday was that education is more so a business in order to give the individual and I think you were seeing it from a kind of a communist socialist uh, versus um capitalist sort of point of view we're trying to get create the best work as possible but actually now ed- education is about business it's about those students um getting the grades and 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 paying for their tuition fees it's not there isn't this sort of semi-utopian um view about education you know and even in junior schools you're right it's about the children getting the grades so there are things getting in the way culturally even if all of the students and all of the but but why is that the case why why were if a society learnt from carl rogers they wouldn't allow grades to dictate the education system I'm saying that society has not learnt from Carl Rogers and therefore it's perfectly common, if not all, in, if not totalitarian, that every school, college and university is only about training pupils to achieve grades to have essentially a brand ready for the workplace. Do you, I mean, I don't disagree with you, but it's about who owns those establishments and who and why who, are they who not, makes the policies and, and why are who, they not banging the carl rogers drum they're not banging the carl rogers drum because they're psychopaths because is that the only explanation it's a pretty good explanation okay. yeah when you get to the top and you understand how we're being controlled and how we're being manipulated and and who's really benefiting from that you know it's a tiny amount of people that are truly benefiting from all of the systems you know the education and the political and the you know, in the welfare and even, you know, the, um, how we put it, the, the economic policy, all of these policies are generally designed in a way that benefits a small amount of people rather than a large amount of people. And in my opinion, this is to do with those who are in charge of that and that a lot of them are psychopaths. And how do you feel right now? Do you feel like you have a, enough more to say about psychopaths that it would fill the whole of the next episode or do you feel like you have a little bit more to say about psychopaths that you could say right now i know i I think we've only just touched we're only the tip of the iceberg with psychopathy okay um yeah so so that's all i have to say for today well we've dangled the psychopathic carrot for the listener to come and stuff it in their mouth with us next time on private practice podcast yeah and i think we did manage to get to some kind of 
I'm very satisfied with this episode. I hated the way it started, but then I also now dislike myself at the start of this episode and like you at the start. You know, when you go into a shop and they've got some customer research type thing whereby there's a plinth and they want they want your feedback, but it's quantitative, not qualitative. So it just says, how was your experience today? And you've got a choice of happy face or sad face. Um, like the toilets in Spain. Yeah, so... How was the performance of Dan Brown and how was the performance of James Hall at the start of this podcast? Happy face for Dan Brown, unhappy face for James Hall. That's how I'd push those buttons. But then for the rest of the podcast, I'm pressing happy face all the way for both of us. Happy face all the way. Let's not edit out the start of the podcast, though. Let's leave that in and we'll allow the listener to decide. Happy face or sad face for Dan or for James? Um, uh, Well, it's a... Uh, goodbye from me and looking forward to seeing you next time, listener. Um, I've been Daniel P. Brown. Preston from The Ordinary Boys. 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 Preston. <laughs> <laughs> it's a wonderful story.